This is the EPLOG audio experience. Film is clearly a sophisticated art, possibly the most important art of the 20th century with a rather complex history of theory and practice, writes James Monaco in his book How to Read a Film. So far in our podcast, The Artists, we have had filmmakers, writers, critics, programmers from some of the top film festivals, musicians, thinkers, defining their combinatorial skills. We at Metaphysical Lab have been striving to expand the realm of our podcast, which in turn gives a wider uh, canvas to the understanding of our experiences. And also we have tied up with Epilog Media, the podcasting network. So you can find us on their website, epilogmedia slash the artists. And of course, you can continue to listen to us on the platforms that you choose from Apple Podcasts to Spotify to GeoSavan to Google Podcast. Everything is mentioned in the description. And of course, you can reach us uh, on the WhatsApp number and our email ID. I'm your host, Suchita, and I'm looking forward to a wonderful journey ahead with all of you. Excited as we're heading to the 100th episode of the Artist Podcast, where we have a special guest I've admired for a long time. Stay tuned for that. And today's very deep episode on arts, media and design, we have with us Maya Van Limput. 15 to 20 years ago, Maya traveled to 28 countries, including India, on a bicycle with her partner that time and discovered the world firsthand, interviewing 382 people in five continents in the 36 months of travel. Now, Maya is a senior researcher for the Research Center Open Time Applied Futures at Erasmus Brussels University of Applied Sciences and Arts, where she also teaches strategic future orientation. She is the UNESCO Chairholder Images of the Future and co-creation for the Open Time team. She earned a PhD from the University of Westminster for research on visions of the future on television. In partnership with photographer Bram Goods, she runs a long-term independent project for exploring images of the future, combining conversation-based approaches and visual ethnography with multimedia co-creation. Her critical forward-looking work on media, culture, arts, cross-cultural communication, development in science and technology in society, uses experimental, creative and participatory approaches. Van Limput is a fellow of the World Future Studies Federation and the Center of Post-Normal Policy and Future Studies and a member of the Board of Association of Professional Futurists. In fact, Forbes named her the 50 female futurists to watch out for. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Maya. Welcome to our podcast, The Artist. And thank you for joining in and thank you for taking out time. And thank you for doing the great work that you are doing. And I'm totally and absolutely fascinated with it. So welcome to our podcast. Thank you very much. And thank you for the invitation. It's lovely to be here and to discover a new bunch of artists. Absolutely. And Maya, this amazing work that you're doing and you're the 50 female futurist in reference to arts, media, design. I want to sort of talk a bit on that. But before that, your journey to India 
and you traveling with your partner to 28 countries and filming these videos and photography and you know getting so many things i just want to know how uh, what was the focus there and uh, how did that go um so i had actually just finished a P, uh, my phd research which looked at how the future is represented on television and um, when i started that i imagined i would be making my own television series or my own television program about the future uh, uh, to follow that now um, instead <laughs> um, my partner who's actually a visual artist a cameraman and a photographer um, and I decided that um, we uh, would uh, conduct a research project that would actually ask the question, okay, in my PhD I saw how the future is represented on television, this was in the mid-90s and in the UK, um, and now we were really curious to learn how actual real people uh, think about the future and and what kinds of images of the future exist outside of, of, of media channels and you know how people really think about it and how they feel it and how they look at it and mm -hmm. so we set out on this um, on this journey this field trip if you like um, mm -hmm to interview uh, people in five continents, in the global north and the global south, mm -hmm. um, uh, about their visions of the future, their fears and hopes and, and their expectations. We ended up uh, traveling for 36 months. Wow. Um, with two recumbent bicycles. <laughs> So they have uh, so these are the bicycles where your feet where you have your feet first, right? They're laid back, mm -hmm. um, which made us into some kind of a circus uh, in a way as well. And mm. we said uh, our bikes were like um, ethnographic tools because it's very different to arrive in a rural village in India, for example. Um, in a well air conditioned jeep and to get out with your notebook and um, and and you know look like a, a serious uh, European researcher or <laughs> to arrive dusty and thirsty and hungry in this same village the reception you get is very different and also the kind of contact that you have um, with the people that uh, live there and with the whole environment uh, is, is quite different um, from the vantage point of, of this bicycle and so we used a semi-structured interview schedule um, in, we interviewed 382 people uh, of which I believe a little under 90 were like experts, people who have an explicit orientation towards the future in their daily work or in their practices from seismologists who predict earthquakes to wow. social scientists and uh, people who work around sustainable energy and all kinds of different uh, or, uh, futures orientations. And then we also talked uh, with a lot of, well, one might say lay people about their um, orientation towards the future. And it, it was a formative project for us. It was you know, my first postdoctoral research project, and um, and we did it as a couple and two, prof you know, two young professionals, and we discovered 
that it's really possible to talk with anybody about the future because mm -hmm. you know the the capacity to to look forward or to to anticipate or the capacity of foresight is is innate in human beings we we all mm -hmm. you know we're automatically because our lives actually make us time travelers you know mm -hmm. one day you're born and and from then the uh, clock starts ticking 60 seconds a minute 60 minutes an hour 24 hours a day seven days a week etc and um because of that humans actually do have this um higher order consciousness as uh, my colleague richard slaughter calls it with which we can you know reflect on on what's to come and and our and cause and consequence and our responsibilities and our our desires and uh, and we actually as human beings are really well equipped for mm. futures thinking even though we often do it quite badly or slop or or in a sloppy way or um but when you actually uh, um approach people and 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 tell them, listen, I'm talking with people all over the world about their ideas on the future. And my opening question would just be, you know, is that a subject you ever think about? And mm. uh, sometimes you get the people who say no, and then you ask, oh, and don't you have children or don't you want children? And then they think, yeah, maybe I do think about the future sometimes. Uh, but most of the time, people recognize that they do think about the future. And you can have really uh, very personal sometimes, but also very specialized uh, thematic uh, conversations uh, with people uh, with this question about future mm. thinking as the entry point. Mm. True, yeah. true. And my, you, you guys traveled in a bicycle 36 yes. months. 28 countries interviewing 382 people what do you think they came out with when you're talking about the image of the future what was their idea what was their prediction and also as we were just talking a couple of uh, minutes before can we really predict the future <laughs> well, so predicting. Well, let me address that last question first, because it's really <laughs> important to futurists in general uh, to state that, of course, obviously, um, our job is not about prediction, and mm. we don't. We we're not looking to predict the future. Uh, we can make forecasts, you know, like the weather forecast. You have sort of a. Uh, an idea of uh, what you can expect, but it's never really sure. Um, and and obviously, prediction is is something is is an important function in our societies. And I always say that it must be the second oldest uh, profession. This profession of of a, uh, of soothsayers and 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 <laughs> people who do divination. And you know, this is something that has existed for a really long time because human beings are interested in 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 um, understanding uh, what's ahead and so um, it, it sells pretty well if you if you um, claim to uh, be predicting but that's not what we do uh, as futurists as uh, what interests us is all the all the images of the future that actually exist today 
uh, whether it's mediated images of the future, like I treated with uh, my PhD, or whether it's images of the future that live inside the hearts and minds of, of people everywhere on earth, um, how they are constructed, how they are used, how they're abused as well, um, and and where they come from and, and what what they look like and and what they lead to the, the, those kinds of questions interest us a lot and and how you can actually you know uh, create and co-create uh, more and different and uh, images of the future together preferably with diverse groups uh, of, of people and so what came out of that of, of those conversations that we held you know, there's with 382 interviews across the globe, you understand that this is not representative research. I can't make any statements about, you know, generalizations about what uh, the world population, how they look at the future. And and in particular, I can't I also can't make uh, statements about what certain um, groups of people in certain countries or uh, actually uh, feel what I. We did have um, uh, the opportunity to think about the differences in how these these expert conversation partners approach the future and how lay people do. Um, mm -hmm. So, in a sense, uh, we found that uh, people who are professionally engaged with the future have a much harder time talking about personal or individual futures, and sometimes even about local futures because if they have a a thematic or a, or a domain-related uh, specialization, um, then they feel that's what they can talk about with authority, and um, and and they're much more hesitant to talk about other aspects of you know the future that we're all anticipating somehow. Um, the other thing that I found really interesting um, because we did interview. Um, in, in what's called developing countries and post-industrial countries and, you know, countries that are doing, where people are doing, or families are doing really well and have more than enough and countries where that's m much less uh, the case. And so we found that um, the relationship to uncertainty and, uh, in different play, uh, contexts is quite different. So when we talked with people who... Um, endure hardship uh, or face uh, important threats in their immediate environment, mm. um, a lot of the time they come across as being more hopeful about the future than, I don't know, here in my own country in Belgium, people who have literally more than enough, mm. uh, uh, who actually uh, uh, fear change and, and uncertainty because well, if you have more than enough, then change uh, is much more likely to mean that you're going to lose something. And at the, and when you are lacking, and when there are lots of hurdles to overcome, um, then change has the uh, presents the potential of improvement. Mm, yeah, Very interesting. And, now, and that's that was, I think, one of the main findings from these interviews. The other thing is that what I've said to begin with, and that is that 
it really came out at anybody, no mm. matter their age, no matter their um, level of education, no matter their world views, and that actually anybody can uh, have conversations about the future and can articulate the ideas about it. And I think that's really important because one of the things that we seem to be forget a lot of the time um, when we look at the future is to uh, consider multiple possibilities, not just to ask ourselves what's coming and can mm. we predict what's coming, but to consider mm. all the different op uh, options and possibilities that 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 don't just present themselves, but that sometimes you need to actually invent, <laughs> and mm. then to and then to identify from within this wide range of possibilities. I always tell my students that um, there are endless possibilities, infinite possibilities, which doesn't mean that anything is possible, of course, but it mm -hmm. does, does sort of indicate the, the enormous plurality, potential plurality of our future, of our futures, I should say. That's why we use the mm. of course. Um, and then that people need to also be able to understand what is preferred within these images of the future. So you can actually orient your actions in the present towards those elements in the future that are important to you and bring the future into the present for orientation. Yeah, that was an important um, wow. point. Wow. And specifically, what you mentioned, the relationship with uncertainty was very different when it came to countries like Belgium versus like countries in India. Yeah. And I saw this photograph of you. Uh, of you, of of uh, you traveling through Karnataka, and you know how was your experience traveling through India? It was um, um, well. So you have, <laughs> when you're traveling by bike, you have the you have the physical challenges, of course. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes. uh, we were there. Did, we you, were, did you did yeah. you did you specifically make the bike for this travel journey? I'm sure something additional. So the bike. Um, well, you know, we were trying to also experiment with ideas for the future. And well, we now know that all these fossil fuel vehicles are perhaps not <laughs> our best option. And so we thought a human powered vehicle um, uh, will work. And um, we had a, a sponsorship from a German uh, a bicycle company who make only these kinds of bikes. They're wow. called HP Velotechnik and and they um, uh, generously donated uh, our two bicycles to uh, the project. So that's how we came about them. And it, there's a whole story, of course, about how <laughs> you know these people and, and all that. But um, but then once we were on them and um, and riding and or on or not on them and having them next to us. It, in a train or uh, on the roof of the bus that we were on because we didn't sort of, it wasn't like a, a sporty effort. Our intention wasn't to ride every single meter of our journey. Our intention was to, you know, have some um, independent means of locomotion for ourselves <laughs> to, you mm. know, to be able to freely pick our own destinations. But the bicycle gave us a lot of uh, advantages. Um, for example, um, there's, of course, that aspect uh, where 
if you, you, you come across as so much more human when you arrive in this little rural village, uh, dusty mm. and thirsty, and people understand like, oh, oh these two humans, oh, they must, <laughs> should, do you need a drink? Uh, uh, there's a whole different attitude than when you come up, uh, arrive in the same place in your air-conditioned Jeep and with your notebook uh, cleanly under your arm. So that made a difference in the way that the contact between uh, us and, and the people in the places that we visited, um, that made a big difference. But there's also that idea that this, these were uh, rather original bicycles with our feet first and it's uh, your laid back position. And we thought it was really interesting to, to see how people who'd never seen such a thing actually mm. did recognize it as bicycles, you know, they, <laughs> and, and, and how, they, how they relate to, to something that's so innovative uh, from their point of view and, and how they um, understand what that thing must be and, and uh, yeah, how it triggers their interest as well. And then the other thing is, on a bicycle, you're not as slow as a pedestrian where, you know, that's that would mean that you walk, I don't know, maximum 30 kilometers a day or something like that. Mm. But you're a lot slower than in a car or, or on a bus. And you're also, you don't, you're not um, separated from the world that you're traveling through. You're actually in the middle of it. You know, mm, the, yes. there's a dust storm, the dust hits your arms. And we were in Karnataka in the rainy season. Yeah, in Karnataka, yes. Yeah, which means that um, not only did we get wet from our own sweat in the, you know, in the heat and the, and the moist uh, air, um, but it also determined, you know, parts of the rhythm of our, of, of, of what parts of the day we would be riding and, um so was it was it safe? Like, how did you guys cross the continents? Well, it was it safe? Yeah. Well, we didn't get into any um, seriously unsafe situations. We haven't been robbed, and we haven't been, you know, we never really got into any major hardship. You know, we also rode in excruciating heat in uh, West Africa, and wow. and then you have to look after your body, of course, and, mm. uh, to be safe. But but yeah, that what my experience from that journey is that uh, the world is a more friendly place than we imagine, actually. Wow, but that was that was like what? That was like 15, 20, how many years back was that? That's, um, yeah, 20 years back. We traveled in 2000 and 2003, yeah. Wow, and, and, and uh, how did you cross the the Pacific Oceans and the Atlantic Oceans? How On did you? airplanes, like we used to. Okay, okay. <laughs> Oh, you did, you did, you did, okay. You did take the flights. It was... Yeah, and buses and trains and boats. Beautiful. Yeah. Sounds so exciting. I wish I could, I could do something like this. But Maya, when we're saying about you predicting the future of media, arts and design, and you are also teaching in a university, when we're talking about the visions of the future when it comes to media, arts and design, what is it that you predict? Well, I don't. 
<laughs> I don't predict at all. It's mm. not a question you can ask me because I mm. cannot answer. I'm, I, it's not about prediction. Mm. And even if I do um, uh, look at what the future of media arts and design might bring, my yeah. relationship with media arts and design is about using the processes and the perspectives of media arts and design to think about the future better and to also have these images of the future that I was talking about earlier um, to, to attend to make them more tangible uh, for people. Mm. So mm. a lot of the time in, the, in, in our policymakers' reports or, or in academic studies and the white papers and of the UN and all that, um, mm. the future remains this sort of abstract zone and, and, and you know, with hypothetical uh, statements in complicated grammar. Um, and so with media, arts and design approaches, you can actually provide impressions or experiences of what a future might be like. And mm. so when people have contact with the future in that way, they it becomes a lot more real and it becomes easier to think about the possibilities and the preferences uh, that one might have and what and the desires and the visions, you know. So the my media arts and design work is um, takes place by Combining um, my systematic and and and, and structured um, semi-scientific uh, futures approach with uh, the approaches of artists. So usually I work together with artists. Um, in a lot of the cases, that would be my partner, and then we make videos and documentaries, and uh, mm-hmm. we conduct, we film our interviews and things like that. Um, mm-hmm. But we've also worked with 16 different artists in the Congo who all created their own images of the future together with uh, a a small groups of young adults who had uh, discovered their own futures thinking in the weeks ahead of that. We've we've had collaborations with individual artists on their projects where we bring in a futures perspective. Um, So, yeah. The question about what I see coming for media arts and design uh, Mm -hmm. in the future is that they can actually play a bigger and bigger role in um, shaping and underpinning uh, how our cultures consider our uh, the possibilities out there so mm-hmm. for me it's it's about story and about visual impressions and about if i'm uh, if i'm I, if i think about media arts and design obviously i realize all the technological changes that are taking place but when i've interviewed uh, for example um, uh, press photographers about the future of uh, uh, photojournalism and um, uh, the, the answers that make the most sense are those that say it doesn't really matter what the technologies are as long as you get close up to your subject and as long as your stories mm-hmm. are well built and honest and accessible then um, then that's what that's the core uh, of what goes on in media arts and design. The core isn't, you know, how our tools are changing. And yes, it affects mm. distribution in particular, 
you mm-hmm. know, and the reproduction yeah. and all that. And and so we do need to think about what media arts and design can be in the future as well. Um, mm-hmm. And the kind of work that I do around that is, is I, I work together with cultural organizations quite a lot when they are looking at how they want to position themselves towards a particular preferred image of the future, um, how they want to make sure they survive, because you, you all know that uh, in, in in culture and arts, it's not always self-evident that you're going to be making a living out of it properly and that your organization is going to sort of grow and and do what it intends to. And so there's um, there are a lot of questions around that. And then there are the questions around how, how people actually use um, what's in the you know, media processes or me- media content. And I think a very interesting um, distinction when you are thinking about media, arts and design futures um, is the, the, the distinction between, you know, our hardware, how our, techno- mm-hmm. how, how our tools are changing, the software, mm-hmm. you know, how they, are, how they actually work and what mm-hmm. makes them work. But also the orgware, you know what humans, how humans organize how we use these tools and what we do with them and where they can take us. And so mm-hmm. I think that for me, the role that I see in the future for media arts and design is, is, very, mu- is very formative to how our cultures look at not just the future, but, but all the challenging thematics uh, that um, are, you know, emerging as important around us and how we um, can actually think and work with all these different alternative possibilities. And and so I think media arts and design are going, going to remain really important in the future. But I'm not making any predictions <laughs> about how that's going to happen. Right. Right. And of course, as you mentioned, the main distinction is coming from the hardware versus the software. The tools that we are using are changing. What is your, uh, how do you like to predict in terms of the culture, for example, the TikTok culture, for example, the OTT platforms are all coming together. The divisiveness of the continent and the culture is becoming lesser. So we are becoming more global and things like TikTok are actually influencing the culture. How would you predict that in what direction are we going in terms of our personal self-expression? So again, I'm not making any predictions, Um, Mm. but I can talk about, you know, we can look at what it's doing with our cultures and whether our our storytelling is actually getting any better from platforms (laughs) like TikTok. That's, uh, you know, something that I think lots of anybody who watches it can answer for themselves. You know, it's like what's being what's being offered to me here as a as a viewer, as a user. um, Is this actually enriching my my world? Is it giving me uh, images of the present, the past or the future um, that 
uh, are going to inspire a, a new way of being in the present. And and so that's that. And I think that a lot of the the uses uh, by the makers, the people that put stuff on there, and and the viewers, um, are limited by uh, the. Mm, the demand for uh, you know attracting big audiences and making stuff mm. what's that called industrially productive you know mm. with, with industrial with consumption commercial. perhaps yeah yeah there's a lot of, of of private commercial interests involved in the stuff that we find it's mm. not the case that I mean of course individuals have the opportunity to broadcast today and that's not just with TikTok and that does make yeah. a difference for how our cultures actually work and how we um, how we influence each other with the the things that each of us find important and then share but um, I, I'm not yeah. Convinced that, um, uh, well, the way that TikTok lives today, hmm. it's also, you know, a way for us to not expand what we see of our world, but to be, hmm. to remain in the suggestions of algorithms that uh, want to predict what yeah. we are yeah. going to like. And yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's it's layered, you know, Maya. It's so layered. Do you think it's helping the culture? Are we are we becoming better or are we regressing? Well, that's a a, a really interesting question. And then, uh, except other than the question of what you know, are things improving in our world or are they going back? Yeah. There is yeah. also the question: How much influence do you feel you have? So the answers to these questions define someone as an optimist or a pessimist. If you think things are going to be, uh, are getting better all the time and will continue to get better, now then you're labeled an optimist. And but are you still an optimist if you think, for example, that you don't have any influence over the direction of change? Then you're like an influence pessimist. Um, mm. So uh, th that's an idea um, that that futurists play in a game called the Polak game, where we ask people to literally put two steps forward or several steps forward, uh, depending on whether they if they think the world is getting better, and a few steps backward. Uh, if they think things are getting worse. And we ask people to move left or right according to the kind of influence that they think they actually can have on this. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, I think the middle point there is the, is, is the most interesting. It's where you realize that some things are getting better and other things are getting worse and that it all just depends on what you think is. Uh, are the more important factors to consider, um, mm -hmm. and um, but but also the fact, Maya, that this because these small videos and you have and you've made these videos twenty years ago with a very different context. 
I've also made such videos just two years ago, right? It's not, mm. I didn't stop mm. doing it after that mm. project. Right. So, but the context was very different. The, the quality was different. The approach was different. Now these videos, because they are proliferated everywhere, do you think, would you say that they're also influencing the content consumption quality of the people? So if you're constantly consuming the content that's irrelevant and that's just sort of out there because it's people's personal stories, the actual content that needs to be out there, perhaps something that would enhance the future and make it more progressive is not getting consumed. Hmm. Um, so I'm not sure that pers people's personal stories don't actually um, mm -hmm. uh, provide the uh, uh, the same type type of critical yes. provide the same type of critical content that you are defining as the content that we need. I think mm -hmm. that um, actually the idea of being able to have like a global conversation about what we actually need. <laughs> is really uh, important and it's a, an important option that um, uh, these kinds of media channels and platforms give us. Now, um, I, I'm, I'm sure that people's personal stories are actually really important to the world. It, it determines, you know, it determines our outlook and our worldview and our outlook and our worldview determines what we can see as possible as future possibilities and therefore how we uh, take decisions in the present. I interviewed a, an anthropologist in, in Flagstaff, his name is Reed Reiner, um, mm -hmm. during that uh, original field trip. And, um, and he said, um, any decision you make is based on your image of the future, on what you expect is going to happen. And so if your images of the future are fuzzy and incoherent, then your decisions in the present will be fuzzy and incoherent too. So I think it's some, it does sort of, it's worth uh, the effort to try in any which any way we can to, to, to shape our own images of the future. And if that, and of course, the inputs from other people, whether they're personal stories or, or professional analyses or academic analyses of, of, of what the world needs right now or stuff like that, um, we, we need to have all these inputs from different perspectives. If just if we stick to one expert opinion about a potential improvement of our plight, um, we may very well be, be colonizing the future. And it's actually the idea is actually that we get there all together and that and then that it's everybody's future. So you are saying that every format, every medium that we are experiencing right now as people on the planet is important and everything has its own place and everything is coming together to rather confluencing to form the culture and define the future um well it, it is uh, our culture consists of course uh, uh well consists uh, is definitely influenced by our cultural project pro products right yeah and, and what the and and but at the same time, these cultural products are a reflection of what's actually going on in our society. So it's a, 
it's a two-way relationship. It's it's not like uh, if only we make um, the right images of the future and and distribute them well, <laughs> everything will be solved. And also, it's actually more the case like if our um, cultural products uh, or our creations, to use a more uh, are, I mean, to use the better word, uh, according to me, if our creations can stimulate people to to mm. think for themselves and to and to take a step back and and not just to think about the past that we're already on, but on all the different branches this past could have and where and where we would like to walk and how we want to do that then I think we're making progress. And yes, all these different tools and these different channels, uh, they all affect um, or they all exist together in the same, on the same planet, right? And so yeah. they give us the potential of considering this as one big web of communication and culture. Um, yeah. And that's a really interesting perspective to take. I'm, I, I always plead for um, polylogue, which means that we don't just have, you know, um, debates between two fixed positions, but that we try to include in our conversations about where we are, where we could go, where we want to go, um, that in these conversations, there are multiple perspectives present that can influence each other and that and that can sort of um, not come together into one single chorus and a, and a unified idea about what the future could be, but that instead actually allow for the plurality of mm. these different images of the future that exist inside mm. us and around us. Mm, that's beautiful. So basically creating something that's stimulating people to think and create and looking at something which is not unified, but is more plural as we move forward. Yeah, yeah. I think that the plurality is really crucial here. Agreed. Mm, beautiful. What is the image that you see? My own personal image of the future? Yes. I'm going to borrow from Tony Stevenson, who's a not with us anymore, but who was a very influential in in my formation as a as a futurist, and mm -hmm. he he said um, that he believes that that humanity is actually on a on a on a learning curve, and that mm -hmm. barring um, uh, the big disasters that might very well actually stop us in our tracks, <laughs> mm -hmm. um, we can actually continue learning, and and. My own personal, not expectation, but vision and, and uh, so a, a preferable future for me would be one in which different people can learn in different ways and can grow in, and, and, and develop themselves and their surroundings and the world um, according to their own talents and their own preferences and mm. you know um, uh, equity sustainability and openness i think are, are crucial elements of my own personal image of the future or of my own personal vision for the future 
I think that the most important thing we can learn uh, is probably not to close the doors on any of the possibilities that exist today, to actually try and produce more potential rather than to aim so specifically for one particular uh, state of the world that no other states uh, could uh, come about or could emerge. I think openness to emergence is really important and, mm-hmm. and openness to difference uh, will also be crucial if we're going to survive the present. Mm-hmm. Beautiful openness to emergence. Thank you so much, Maya. Thanks, Suchita. Every form of storytelling creates a certain culture and cultures drive systems, countries and of course people. And for me one of the greatest takeaways has been need for global conversation around content consumption and creation and most importantly an openness to emergence and differences if we are going to survive the present. Point to ponder this weekend.